This program is brought to you by Emory University. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the um, first Dean's Lecture of this academic year. Delighted to see so many of you, and I hope you're enjoying your lunch. We have a wonderful um, guest speaker this morning from Wheaton College, and uh, Professor Ed Phillips will be introducing him and moderating the questions and answers. Uh, some of you have already had the pleasure of interacting with him, and uh, now you'll have another opportunity. Some of you will have the opportunity for the first time, so we're thrilled uh, that you've come and um, that uh, you will grace us with uh, wisdom and insight. I'd like for us to um, say grace for our meal first, so if you would pray with me. God, we thank you for this beautiful day, for the changing of the seasons, for the reminder of your presence with us through nature and through all that surrounds us in your good creation, part of which is this wonderful lunch that we enjoy today. Thank you for all those who had a part in preparing the lunch for us, including the wonderful staff at Candler School of Theology. <coughs> Thank you for the use of our minds and our hearts as we engage tough and tender issues today. Thank you for our guest speaker and all those who had a hand in arranging his presence with us. Be with us as we eat this food and partake of the rich resource of this lecture and help us use these things that we receive these wonderful gifts that we receive to build uh, your reign among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm truly honored that uh, Dean Love invited me to introduce my good friend George Kalantzis as our lecturer today. Because I know a good bit about George, I'm going to read my introduction so that I don't stray too far from uh, the topic. But George is Associate Professor of Theology and the Director of the Center of Early Christian Studies at Wheaton College. George was born and reared in Athens, Georgia, in the shadow of the Parthenon, as he likes to proclaim. Can we make that Greece instead of Athens, Georgia? Pardon? Can we make that Athens, Greece? Athens, Athens Greece, excuse me. Did I say Athens, Georgia? Man, <laughs> I've already screwed it up. Let's do it. He grew up in the Greek, evangel Greek Free Evangelical Church and is a minister of that denomination. He came to the U.S. to study medicine, but got tempted by the field of patristics and wound up studying at Northwestern University, where he received his Ph.D. in the field of patristics in 1997. Professor Kalantzis is known in the Patristics Guild as a leading scholar working on Theodore of Mopsuestia. He's the author of Theodore of Mopsuestia, Commentary on the Gospel of John, in the Early Christian Studies series, as well as numerous essays on the writing of Theodore. He also has related interest in the development of early Christological and Trinitarian theology. In addition to his scholarly research, George has several co-edited volumes of essays that show the breadth of his interest. Uh, notably, uh, I'm going to hold up this book to have it. Uh, Evangelicals in the Early Church. And, uh, which the bookstore should have in stock for people who would be interested in looking at that, buying a copy. Um, this contains the addresses and papers of an important conference, the first 
Papa Theophanes lecture uh, in, in a lecture series at the Center for Early Christian Studies in 2009. Uh, for that conference, the noted scholar Robert Wilkin was the keynote speaker, and it, it's been an important conference, and this has the papers. George's forthcoming book, scheduled for release in October, sadly not in time for this uh, presentation today, is Caesar and the Lamb, Early Christian Attitudes on War and Military Service, and that is the general theme of his presentation today. There Will Not Be Blood is the title. I first met George when we were both considerably younger, when he and I were on the faculty of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston. I knew him as an outstanding scholar of patristics, but also as a wonderful colleague and teacher. George is a good friend, and I could tell you, since he's a good friend of mine, I could tell you several slightly embarrassing things about him. However, he also knows way too much about me. And so we both agreed to be professional and not do that in public, right? But if you want to know the really fun stuff, you can see me later. I'll be glad to tell you. <coughs> After being at Wheaton only three years, uh, George received the Leland Ryland Award, Kin Award, excuse me, for teaching excellence, the highest award given to a faculty member. And this is a, an award voted on by students. I believe this is testimony to his commitment to teaching and service, as well as his commitment to scholarship at the highest level. And an additional fun fact, his son, Apostolus, is a graduate student here at Emory in the International Development Program, and his future daughter-in-law, Kendall Batten, is his new student here at Candler. So we're glad to have her here. Uh, Irene, where are you? Irene, his wife, is also here with us today. Let us welcome Professor George Galantzis of Athens, Greece. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great honor and a great pleasure to be with you. And Ed, thank you for refraining. Um, it, it, it is so tempting uh, to talk about the horsemen. I invite you to, if you have time, um, ask Ed later about the horsemen of the apocalypse. I'm always the pale, regardless of what he says. Um, this, uh, the lecture we're going to have today, um, uh, or the discussion we're going, hopefully, to have today together, uh, comes from a book, as Ed said, that is forthcoming in the next couple of weeks. But let me start by saying that that was a book I did not want to write. And I didn't want to write it because of the environment in which I grew up, the national identity, the, the religiosity that comes with that. It was a book that made no sense to me as one raised within the Greek context, not the Greek diaspora, but the Greek national context in which state and religion are always together, seen as one. But the more I read the, the early writers, and I will use the term fathers and early writers almost interchangeably, with the exception of Origen, <laughs> who's a writer, not a father. Um, the more I read them, the more uh, it became apparent to me that we're talking about very different paradigms. So what is history? I'm a historian. History is the stories we tell of our common past. 
Through stories, we make sense of the world and gain a better understanding of who we are. As such, narratives are character formative. They help us define ourselves. The hearing and telling of stories, therefore, is itself a way of answering questions about what we're really talking about. The idea behind this book is to or this lecture also is to focus on the attitudes of the earliest Christians on war and military service and to tell the story of the struggle of the earliest church, the communities of Christ at the margins of power in society, to bear witness to the nations that enveloped them as they transformed the dominant narratives of citizenship, loyalty, freedom, power, and control. Together, uh, I would invite us to think our way into the world of the early Christianity and ask questions of the past that may help us understand the genotype of the Christian faith with the hope that such an enterprise will also help us evaluate its expression in our own time. I will refrain from making the connection and the bridge from their time to our time, but I will allow you to draw your own conclusions. We must expect to be surprised by the past, but we must also expect to be questioned by it, for it is our past. As Christians, we claim that because of Jesus Christ, the familiar world has been broken apart and made new. We claim to stand in historical continuity with the work of God through time and space. We claim that the reality of the earliest Christians is both different from us and part of us. Ron Williams insists that good history is, at its core, irreducibly a moral affair. At the very least, he's persuading us to put some distance between ourselves and ourselves, between our imaginations and what we habitually take for granted. My goal, therefore, in this study and today with you is as much theological as it is historical. I aim to read the history of the earliest church in a way that is theologically sensitive while still doing, hopefully, good history at the same time. For good theology does not come from bad history. In a topic like ours, the literature is vast, as you can imagine, and it's not only recent. The problem is that most often, especially since the 19th century, the discussions have undergone polyvalent shifts. Uh, in this span. A decade apart, David Hunter and Alan Kreider have produced excellent summaries, if those, for those of you who are interested, on the shifts in the scholarly consensus and have shown that the most, for the most part of the 20th century, beginning with uh, Adolf Harnack's Militia Christi, first published in Germany in 1905 and then in English in 1981, uh, a consensus, has, a broad consensus, has been formed around a tripartite um, agreement. The first part was that the earliest Christians renounced war and military service out of an aversion to bloodshed. The second, that by the end of the second century, and certainly by the end of the third, the increased militarism of the Roman state, the numerous inducement for enlistment, the active recruitment from the more Christianized eastern, eastern frontiers, meant that some Christians began to find military service an acceptable option despite the, teaching, the teachings of Christian writers. The third point of consensus was that by the end of the fourth century in the so-called Constantinian era, which basically spans from Constantine to Theodosius I, um, as 
Hunter says it, quote, a just war ethic had developed, largely the work of Ambrose and Augustine, which met the need of a Christian accommodation to a changed political and social situation. In my work, I do not argue that these narratives are completely false or, or wrong. Rather, I argue that if history is the stories we tell of our common past, how we tell the stories is equally as important as what stories we choose to tell. I'm great, grateful for the work of all those who have written and clarified many of the ideas about which we try to find consensus. However, even though some recent scholarship read, for example, Peter Lighthart's Defending Constantine, um, very popular book, recent book, uh, even though some recent scholarship accepts as axiomatic that, these, that there was ambivalence among the earlier Christians, usually pointing to, the, pointing to the discrepancy between Christian theology and practice, I do not believe that such a conclusion is borne by the literary evidence. The discussion on the topic at hand cannot be, I argue, uh, indefinitely negotiable. Against certain aspects of the so-called new consensus, I argue that the literary evidence confirms a very strong internal coherence on the church's nonviolent stance in the first three centuries. In my work, I have tried to show that in order to understand the fullness of the arguments of the earliest Christians against war and military service, service in the legions of the empire, we need to understand their social religious context as well as the power narratives of their time. To do so, we have to begin at the beginning to place the Christian church within the narrative of Rome, the omnipresence of the gods, the power of Caesar, the cultic structures that arrange the Roman cosmos, the public religion that demanded obeisance and sacrifice. We need to speak of the theater and performativity so as to understand the power of martyrdom, the new world order that turned centuries-old social locutions upside down and co-opted the power of the powerful on the scarred and mutilated bodies of the socially powerless. What emerges is a new call to nonviolence, unrecognizable by the culture around them, for it took the form of civil disobedience as the mark of a transnational community bound together by the bonds of baptism, a community that honored Caesar by disobeying his commands and receiving upon their bodies the only response a state based on the power of the powerful can met in imitation of Christ. So what about Rome? What about these narratives of power of Rome? Even architecturally, even topographically, if one sees at the city of Rome, one sees the narrative of power. The Temple of Vista was at the center of Rome. It was the rhetorical center of the world, and unlike the temples of the other deities, the temple of Vista was round and domed. Really? A simple building is going to tell us much about it? Well, Ovid, the Roman historian and writer, tells us. He says, quote, Vista is the same as earth. Perpetual fire constitutes them both. Earth and the hearth both stand for her dwelling place. This link between heaven and earth, private and public, was at the core of Romanitas. Roman identity and religion was intimately connected with the idea of sacred space. 
It is for this reason that in our account of the relationship between the nascent community of the way, the ecclesia, and the empire within which it grew, we have to always remember the dominant religio-political themes of sacrifice, power, and social order that structured the very air they breathed and the soil in which the church set root. For early Christians, the twin commandments to not kill, yes, I do know it's a split infinitive, but the commandments to not kill, Exodus 20 and Mark 10, and to love one's enemies, Matthew 5, were often treated with a very, within the very context of prescriptions against idolatry and the relationship between Caesar and Christ. Most often, Christian writers began with the dominance, the, the demands of the gods of the empire for obeisance, for sacrifice, for blood, and showed how and why Christians could not participate in such models of being and worship. Christians were to act out of the abiding conviction that the power and hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Both canonical and extra-canonical writers alike insisted that Christianity was not simply a matter of ritual or ethical behavior. But as Averill Cameron puts it, Christianity, quote, was always a matter of teaching, of interpretation, of definition. As Christ was the word, so Christianity, Cameron says, was its discourse or discourses, end quote. Christianity's relationship with the Roman culture that enveloped it was at the end such a, competitive, such a competing discourse, one that arises from the everyday lives of people and their traditions. It is our perception of the sacred character of space and time, these most fundamental elements of everyday life, that the disjoint between our time and the time of the early Christians puts us in a disadvantage. We scarcely question why one should not desecrate cemeteries, or temples, or churches, or pillage monasteries, or libraries, or fight on Good Friday. These are not questions that we ask. In the words of John Howard Yoder, the notion of the holy being represented within our world by certain dates, days, places, and people, exempt from the ravages of violence, even in a violent world, is far from us. We have trouble understanding holiness in place and in time. We lack the training in cultural anthropology and the imagination to grasp how minds work when certain places and certain days are so holy that people will not fight there or then. For ancient and medieval culture, this holiness was important and effective." End quote. Engaging in this cultural anthropology of imagination opens us up to the force of the argument of the early Christian writers on the relationship of the church and the state and its instrument of domination, namely war and the armies, and allows us to recognize that the conflict between Rome and the church was ultimately a collision of sacrificial discourses. The scriptures, especially the New Testament, abound with these competing discourses, and the very sacraments by which one is united with the church and is identified with it, expressed even in the earliest forms of baptism in the Eucharist, were from the beginning imbued with the rhetoric of sacrifice that competed with that of Rome. The very Christian idea of the Vasilia to Theu, the kingdom of God, inaugurated in Luke 4 and given structure in the Sermon on the Mount, could not but be seen as a threat to the kingdom of Caesar. And the peace of Christ, the, the peace that Christ bequeathed to his disciples in John 14, 
threatened the Pax Deorum that guaranteed Rome's eternal place in the world. We have to remember that the Pax Romana does not come by itself, that the Pax Romana is based on the Pax Deorum. The two are inseparable. It is for this reason that the weight of early Christian writers such as Tertullian and Origen and the weight they place on the prohibitions against idolatry cannot be reduced to the anachronistic category of private piety or to the personal acts of worship or even to the periphery of proper religious behavior and be dismissed simply under the heading of warnings against idolatry. And if you look at most of our introductory texts or even some collections, more recent collections on the topic, that is exactly where you're going to find them. Prescriptions, warnings against idolatry. On the contrary, all these prescriptions against idolatry carry with them the full force of a public transcript, a transcript of sacrifice that is formative of both communal and personal identity. Otherwise, one might conceive early Christian understandings of the relationship to the state and its wars and military as a paradox of extremes, oscillating between submission to Caesar and rejection of all temporal authorities. If you will allow me just a minute and a half of the fastest Roman history you ever had. I want to remind us that the Roman world was a bloody war, world. It was unforgiving. After two centuries of expansionism and civic strife, the celebrated Pax Romana was achieved at the point of the Gladius and was protected by Rome's 28 legions and the gods who superintended it. By the time of Constantine, four centuries later, in the fourth century, the massive military apparatus was greatly had greatly surpassed the Augustan ideals of the early empire and expanded to over half a million troops and almost an equal number of auxiliaries. Unlike us, who accept too easily the secularity of the state, in the religious demography of the Roman world into which the early church was birthed, such concepts did not exist. The concept of ancient people, the, concept, the, con the concerns of ancient people were differently oriented. And as with all others, for the Romans too, political order was not a question as it has become for us following the 18th century enlightenment of the functioning of a depersonalized machinery of government from which any final divine purpose or end is excluded. Rather, political order consisted in the exercise of legitimate authority within a space that had been sacralized and therefore ultimately under the control of the gods. We willed order and therefore peace. But in order to guarantee their peace, the gods of Rome demanded sacrifice. And Christians refused to underestimate the potential of violence within such a sacrificial system. Christ, argued Origen, in his seminal work against Celsus, had taught his followers otherwise. This is what Origen says. No longer do we take the sword against any nation, nor do we learn the art of war anymore, since we have become sons of peace through Jesus, who is our author, instead of following the traditional customs by which we were strangers to the covenant." End quote. Just a short 40 years earlier, Tertullian had made a similar claim. Tertullian said, but how will a Christian go to war? 
Indeed, how will he serve even in peacetime without a sword which the Lord has taken away? For even his soldier, continues Tertullian, if soldiers came to John and received advice on how to act, and even, as a, even if a centurion became a believer, the Lord, by taking away Peter's sword, disarmed every soldier thereafter. We, Christians, are not allowed to wear any uniform that symbolizes a sinful, a sinful act. End quote. Was the early church, however, uniformly pacifist? And what could it mean for a minority group living under the security provided by the empire to be pacifist? What does that mean? Were Tertullian and Origen representative of the common Christian sentiment, or were they just peripheral voices who happened to have come to us? Even more importantly, was rejection of war and military service based on an aversion to killing, or was there another reason for that? And many of you by now are wondering, what about Cornelius? During the past two generations of scholarship, many have addressed the relationship of Christians and the Roman army. The reasons for prohibiting, abstaining, and even joining legions. But no one has shed as much light on the role of idolatry and the religious syncretism of the armies as central to Christian objections to enlistment as John Helgeland. Helgeland has shown how Roman army religion, quote, created a sacred cosmos in which the soldier lived from the day he enlisted until the day he died, end quote. Helgelin has argued that resistance to, the, to that sacred cosmos, that ritualistic melange of soldiering, was the primary concern of writers like Origen Tertullian, who wrote against Christian involvement in the military. Throughout his writing, Helgelin has insisted that Christian objection to war and military service in the pre-Constantinian period was the result not of ethical, put that in quotation marks, but of religious concerns a rejection of the pervasive Roman army religion. In his attempt to argue against the so-called pacifist consensus, Helgeland seems to have succumbed to the danger of overreaching. Charging with concatenation, concatenation those who see the basic posture of pacifism as early, in early Christianity, he argued that his argument leads him to reject almost completely that violence and adversion to bloodshed were essential objections for early Christians. And this is what he concludes. He says, there is practically no evidence from the fathers which would support the argument that the early church denied enlistment on the ground that killing and war were opposed to the Christian ethic. The pacifist argument is an artificial construct bringing together passages torn from their context and arranged in a way the fathers, no father would ever have done. No univocal um, statement, no unequivocal statement to support that argument can be found. And certainly not, on, not one of any length, such as a paragraph, three or four sentences long." End quote. I want to point out that as one reads the documents, from the first century to the fourth century. Helgeland is certainly correct that the immediate context of the, that occasioned Christian objections were specifically acts of public ritual. It is, for example, for Tertullian uh, on the crown, the occasion of a soldier who comes, shows up for a parade without a uniform. He doesn't wear the crown of the victor that he has been given. 
and therefore he attracts attention to himself, uh, shown himself, showing himself to be um, a Christian, or taking off ritualistically the, the belt that has the elements of the army. This much is unquestionable, but is that the whole story? David Hunter has noted that the unfortunate dichotomy between religion and ethics had led some, including Hegelin, to identify Roman religion so narrowly as the locus of patristic objections to war that methodologically he is forced to dismiss the other equally essential dimensions in the Christian arguments against the Gentiles, namely the nonviolent character of the Christian community and the explicit Christian aversion to bloodshed. Hunter points out this, he says, even if Roman army religion was Tertullian's main target in, for example, on idolatry or on the crown, it seems that aversion to bloodshed was also a concern. In the former work, Tertullian explicitly addresses the question of military service apart from the requirements to make sacrifice or to execute capital punishment. And the same holds true for Origen and everyone else. For the Romans, worship of the omnicausal gods was world formative, not simply epistemic, and the gods demanded sacrifice. Helgeland has collect, correctly identified the sacred cosmos created by the Roman army religion as of central importance in the Christian rejection of war and military service. Yet, this was not a mere substitution of religious allegiances, nor, nor, nor a mere nor were the prescriptions against idolatrous practices limited to the cultus, to the cult. It was a tut-court rejection of this sacred world as the Romans knew it, of the religion that created it, of the practices that gave it expression. To separate religion from its rituals from, and its rituals from the ethical implications of our lives is a modern move, not an ancient move. Origen's clear statements no longer do we, since, juxtaposes the two competing religious systems very much as Jesus' did. You have heard it being said, but I tell you. Created two competing ethical systems. Christians did not worship the gods of the Romans, and therefore they did not act in accordance with the demands of those gods. No longer do we take the short against any nation, since we have become sons of peace through Jesus, who is our author or leader. One cannot distinguish violence and bloodshed from army religion. That is, too, an artificial distinction. Any more than one can distinguish the thrust of the gladius from the fallen enemy. The latter demands the former. To argue that Christian objections to war and military service was not based on the ground of possible bloodshed, but by the nature of military life, in particular the idolatrous army religions, as some have done, is an assumption that contradicts the facts. I will let you read Lightheart's uh, critique of what he calls the pacifist consensus in his book, if you have time. But his basic argument is, his basic argument is that since we do not have all the writings by all the people in, the time of, in that time, we cannot know what he calls, and that's his phrase, he says, we do not know what local pastors did. And therefore, we can say almost nothing about what happened. He says, we do not know the practice of the church, 
we cannot really know about its convictions, therefore. And therefore, he says, what we have is a small articulate minority, meaning the, the, the anti-war consensus. A small articulate minority. What I have tried to show in the book and in other writings, and actually he and I had a public discussion on this, is that is, even though that is an argument that sounds egalitarian, it's almost a non sequitur. Um, it ignores the fact that we do indeed know the prescriptions and conditions for baptism in the first three centuries. It, it ignores the fact that we have documents such as the Apostolic Tradition and the Canon of Hippolytus. Uh, and we will turn to them, we can turn to them later on if, in the discussion if you want to. Moreover, even though he acknowledges that between the New Testament and what uh, we know in the third century or the end of the second century, there is explicitly no presence of Christians anywhere in the writings within the Roman legions. Uh, he receives that silence as a positive uh, that there could be soldiers in the armies. Whether from silence or to silence, such arguments ignore the unfortunate fact of history. That is, if we discount the diverse literary record because it might be representing only the voices and the views of a small articulate minority, we know nothing about anything. The vast majority of the canon of the New Testament is written by two authors from the same community, Paul and Luke. What do we know of Roman history if we silence the small articulate minority? The life of teaching death and resurrection of a Galilean carpenter is given to us by just four writers. It would be more appropriate, I think, to invert the question and ask whether we have any evidence that Christians were actively encouraged to participate in warfare or to pursue service, military service, as a pious Christian vocation or civic duty. And the answer to that is none. There is not a single writer in antiquity, Christian writer, who would do that. Actually, we have the exchange between Celsus and Origen, in which Celsus raises the question, well, Celsus writers, writes about 50 years before Origen, but Celsus raises the question and says, what would happen if Christians, if anyone did, everyone did as Christians do and did not participate in the legions of, of Caesar. Caesar, he said, would be alone, undefended against the barbarians. Remember Origen's response? He says, if everyone did as Christians do, Caesar would not lead the legions because the barbarians too would have been converted. He called that the sovereignty of God. Early Christian writers uniformly assumed a basic posture of pacifism. To argue, as Lightheart does, that because we were some Christians who either chose to join the legions or most likely were converted while in service, but there was only a small articulate minority that could come to be considered spokesmen only because they had the, with, the wherewithal to speak, soldiering was therefore an acceptable Christian practice, is akin to arguing, I propose, that because certain Christians also frequented temples, and engaged in the customary sacred services available to them, yet only a solitary voice from a small articulate minority was recorded as rejecting such practices in the first century, namely Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, 
that temple prostitution, hierodulia, or the frequenting of pagan temples were acceptable Christian practices, simply because we do not have the witness of the rest of the multitude of the silent pastors of the church. That is an absurd argument. It cannot be sustained. In the few minutes that we have left, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about soldiers in the Roman army. To be a soldier in the Roman army was to be in religious observance, in ritual and in practice. Helgeland and others is, are correct in suggesting that the totality of the Roman army religion was an impressive system, so on thoroughly comprehensive that it would be impossible for any Christian in the army to avoid dealing with it in one way or another. Idolatrous practices often occasioned the response, but it was not the means by, by means the only concern. Ethics, the action that result from religious observances was another. For it was impossible to separate re religion from ethics. The comprehensive character of any such system creates, by necessity, an environment of rituals and behavior, of presuppositions and expected action that was impossible for any Christian in the army to escape. Origen, in his commentary on Matthew, Matthew 2.21, uh, saw the relationship quite clearly. He understood that the army was an environment within which warriors were not merely the victims of violence, but also perpetrated. Origen understood that the, what he calls the sort of war Killing becomes a mysterium belly, a sacrament of war and strife, a sacrament that was incompatible with the one inaugurated by Jesus and the sword of homicide, as he calls it, that stood in opposition to the sword of the Holy Spirit. Roman religious rituals, including sacrifices, were also social markers of inclusion and exclusion. The piety of the Romans was communal and public, and Roman religion was not so much preoccupied with distinguishing true from false belief, but rather emphasizing proper behavior and participating in ritual practices. The Romans did not, did not care what was in your heart. What they cared about was, did you do what you were supposed to do the way you were supposed to do it? The religion of the Roman army was indeed the focus of key objections by Christian writers against enlistment, but we ought not allow our own concept of religion to underestimate how fundamental Jesus' twin commandments to not kill and to love one's enemies were for the moral topography of the early Christians. Nor should we neglect the positive argument for proper worship of God through the sacraments of the church in favor of the negative one against idolatry. For it is in our worship and the sacraments of the church where the early Christians professed Christ as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God, and interpreted his story as the gospel of peace, as Ephesians 6 says. It is an incontestable fact that Christ did preach nonviolence. It is also an incontestable fact that war, at the end, is merely another form of sacrificial violence. 
And warriors are not merely the victims of violence. As I said before, they also perpetrate it. This was not the message of the New Testament and the patristic writers, even from the earliest years. The Didache, for example, the catechetical collection of documents from the turn of the first century, opens by identifying the stark contrasts. There are two paths, one of life, one of death. And the difference between these two is great. The Didache teaches, focuses on the distinction of these two paths, on the dominical commandment to love God and one's neighbor as oneself the Didache 1-2, and then proceeds to make explicit how the commandment ought to be interpreted. This is what it says. Bless those who curse you, pray for your enemies, fast for those who persecute you, 1-3. Love of enemy was an overwhelming apologetic of the love of God and of a pious Christian obligation, and it's a theme that permeates Christian writings of this period. Justin, the son of pagan parents, is converted in Ephesus in the middle of the second century. Why? Because an old man comes by him in the seashore and talks to him about the fear of death, or rather, the lack of fear of death that permeates the Christian faith. For Justin, that, he says that in Tri 438. For, for Justin, Christianity had created a completely new ethic, inconceivable by the competing moral system of his time. He says, we who formerly killed one another, not only refused to make war on our enemies, but in order to avoid lying to our interrogators or deceive them, we freely go to our deaths confessing Christ, Apology 139. The second letter of Clement, the writings of Irenaeus, Athenagoras, uh, his plea on behalf of the Christians, the letter to Diognetus, the writings of Clement of Alexandria, uh, as well as Tertullian, Origen, Arnobius, Lactantius, all speak of the irreducible relationship between love of enemy and the Christian call to nonviolence. Love of enemy, insisted Tertullian in, uh, to Scap in the letter to Scapula, is a particular idiom found only among Christians, and, and it separates them. Love of enemy separates Christians from all other people. We need to know, however, note, however, that neither Justin's argument nor that of the other Christian writers was one of a passive acceptance of the pepromenon, the fatalism that acquiesces to the fate at the hands of an omnipotent state. If interpreted as such, Christian pacifism loses its scriptural underpinnings and ignores the fact that Jesus called his disciple to engage in an active peacemaking. The scriptural call to nonviolence locates the positive call to love, especially the enemy, at the non-negotiable center of the Christian message. This reversal of power that originates voluntarily from the one who is perceived in a position of weakness and is directed towards the strong is expressed in the form of prayer for one's persecutor and aims to bring the enemy into the Christian community, Romans 12, 21, right? This is active pacifism. This is an irinopoetic relationship with the world. Justin insisted Christians were mandated to, quote, cultivate piety, justice, love of humanity, philanthropia, faith, and hope, the kind that comes from the Father through the crucified one, end quote. Christians do not kill or participate in war because the rule of Christ demands otherwise. This was not an 
close with this by saying, this was not the naive posture of idealistic bishops and philosophers blind to the affairs of the world. Every one of these writers had experienced the cruelty of war and persecution. Justin's title, how is he known? Martyr, right? Origen of Tertullian had witnessed the cruelty of the Septimian persecutions, the imprisonment, torture, and execution of family members and fellow Christians. Origen saw his father Leonidas arrested, imprisoned, executed in Alexandria. Tertullian and Cyprian witnessed the same cruelty in Carthage. Cyprian, remember, was beheaded. Irenaeus was the presbyter at the Church of Lyon when Blandina and her fellow Christians were condemned at Bistias. They understood that wars were inevitable and that social order may necessitate violence on the part of the magistracy. But they also understood that what is asked of soldiers is to kill. And even though the camp um, may not the camp may not uh, make young men into killers. It takes away the restrictions, the social restrictions on that savage part of us. I believe that, the most, that most early Christian writers saw that there is something fundamental in the move from a bordered national identity with a religion to defend and a people and lineage to protect and a universal call of, to discipleship and the new family of God through Jesus. A family that transgresses national identities and gender and societal constructs through the realigning effects of baptism. Galatians 3, Ephesians 2. A family that brings all into a new kingdom, as Romans 6 and Galatians 3 tells us, whose only defense is the empty tomb. The proof that all violence has been subsumed and conquered on the cross. The result is a resounding alienation from the structures of loyalty and ownership that orients this world because of the new Lord, Jesus. Christians countered the Roman libido dominanti with the new language about power based on the hope of resurrection and the sovereignty of God. And the church's ethical teachings were an expression of that hope. The prohibitions against killing, war, and resisting evil did not simply derive from the assumption about violence as inherently evil, but rather from the early Christian understanding of the sovereignty of God, through the coercive power of the state articulated in the demands for devotion to the gods of the empire and to the emperor as their vicar on earth. The example of Christ provided Christians with a new interpretive matrix that allowed them to follow a competitive a completely new paradigm of power and sacrifice. And there are undergirding instrumentalities of violence and all its proliformity, including killing, were rejected. And that rejection was based on civil disobedience, a passive co-optation of power that found its strength in nonviolent resistance, in imitation of Christ. At the end, I think Louis Swift puts it best. He says this, if violence had any place in the Christian's life, it would appear that it must be a violence which is endured rather than inflicted, and violence which is suffered in imitation of the founder as a way of transcending human passions and breaking the endless cycle of injury and retaliation. Thank you. Sure.
Dr. Phillips had promised me three hours of a lecture and then he cut it down to 45, so. <laughs> Plenty of time for discussion. Yes. Um, so, <clears throat> you said I followed your argument correctly. You, you don't want to entirely throw away from what contradict the standard read of attention and uh, attitudes towards war that separates it into three phases, right? But you can add to the first phase in understanding that that attitude is not just ethically oriented, but is theologically based as well. Yeah. Right. So, my question is, given, if we say that that first phase is first century through, you know, first half of the third century, and we say that the final phase where we have just more theologies is end of the fourth century through the early fifth century, yeah. then are you also arguing that there is a theological argument that takes place between those two periods? And if so, what is the situation surrounding those arguments? Yeah. Where do you see it? What's the cause of that argument? Yeah. Um, th that is why when we speak of early Christianity, it's very important to keep our chronologies straight. Because the tendency is often to lump eight centuries into early Christianity, where it's so different. It's almost as saying, you know, the American experience and meaning the 15th century. It's not the same as the 21st century. Um, there is a progressive change that happens between the late second and middle of the fourth century. And that is a change that happens in practice of Christians, not in the theology of Christians. After Lactantius and the rise of Constantine in the first quarter of the fourth century, not a single Christian is going to be for military service. Not a Christian writer is going to be for military service. Yet, we have multiple examples, especially the late fourth century. We have Christians at the court of Diocletian, Christians in the armies. So what do we do with this? Christians are, are moving very quickly, in the, in, especially after the Dician persecution of um, ending in 251, very quickly into the mainstream of society. Um, it becomes quite lucrative to be m part of the military. The, the world shifts at the end in the fourth century. Between Constantine at the beginning of the fourth century and Theodosius in 390, we cannot speak of the same categories. Why? Because in 390, Theodosius baptizes everyone the fastest way possible, triple their taxes if they're not Christians, boom, everyone is a Christian now. Um, well, when that move happens from a minority community from the margins to the center, now you own the state. Now you have to defend it. Now it's a completely different discussion. So what, does, what happens theologically? Um, in a subsequent work, th this, this work stops with Lactantius, with the first part of Lactantius, or Lactantius I, because Lactantius shifts also in, in his own thinking. Then we have to start thinking, okay, what happens in the fourth century? But we also see in late fourth century, Basil, for example, Basil of Caesarea, the Bishop of Caesarea in can Canon 13, speaks of Christians in the army and says, even though our fathers did not call participating in military campaigns murder, but they allowed for that to happen, 
It is good for Christians who come back from war to abstain from the Eucharist for three years. He puts basically an interdict on Christians and say, you cannot be. Why? And John McCorkin has a fantastic um, essay on this, a beautiful essay on this, in which he says, at the end, Basil is trying to recognize the fundamental difference that exists in the, in the church. This is what he says. By his regulation and by the ritual exclusion of the illuminated warrior from the sacrament, and that is the illuminated warrior from the sacrament, right? Not every warrior. Basil is making sure that at least one public sign is given to the entire community that the gospel standard has no place for war, violence, and organized death. He's trying to sustain an eschatological balance that war is not part of the kingdom of God, signified in the Eucharistic ritual as arriving in the present, but is part of the bloody and greed-driven reality of world affairs, which is the kingdom not arrived. Basil, as well as Augustine later on, or actually right about the same time, recognizes the two cities. The city that is based on power and domination, the city that is as it is, and the city of God, which stands in opposition to that. As far as Augustine is concerned, I, I want to propose that he has suffered much in the hands of many people in the last two centuries much of which he would never recognize as his own positions. And many, including Oliver and Donovan, have written on a reinterpretation of Augustine's political thought. Um, so there is a, a, a basic shift from a marginal community or a community at the margins to a community at the center of power. When Tertullian writes his writings from Carthage, the, population, the Christian population of Carthage putting aside the Tertullian's exegetical or rhetorical hyperbole of we have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods, uh, Christianity in, in, in Carthage, Christians in Carthage are not more than 3,000, roughly, in a city of over half a million people. So hardly the same situation that Ambrose and Augustine are going to face a century and a half later. So, but when we do this and we lump the late 4th, early 5th century with the 2nd, 3rd century together, we, we destroy what the historic integrity of those communities is. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to recover the first three centuries uh, and say, okay, then we have to ask the question, what changed here? And it's very clear what changed. It's not Constantine. The church changed. Did I, do you want to follow up? This is what happens when we have a long time for discussion. I give long answers. <clears throat> Dr. Phillips, I thought you asked all your questions yesterday. Okay. Um, so, one of the things you claim is that the Christian prohibition against uh, violence was largely based uh, not in some sort of modern separation of uh, yep. from Catholics, or it wasn't based on just a, a categorical prohibition against bloodshed per se. It was based on their understanding of the sovereignty of God. Yeah. So in the third century, fourth century, when uh, God then gets uh, in 
enlisted, co-opted into the military service, you know, yeah. to be the god of the military as well, or certainly becomes gradually, of course, the fourth century more and more the imperial religion, right? Yeah. Then uh, Christians have uh, less problem with people That's in right. the military. I mean, in a sense, what you're saying is that um, the understanding of God's, how God operates God's sovereignty changed during this period of time. No, so that when God, when the religion is pagan, quote, then uh, the violence wrapped up in paganism is not allowed. Mm -hmm. But once the religion becomes Christian, then any sort of violence that would be necessary yeah. be allowed because of the sovereignty of God. Um, I, that's, <clears throat> I, I, that may be right, but it really troubles me if yeah. that's the case. Right? It, it does. And especially when one considers exactly what happens in that shift in the early 4th century. Um, and, th and this is how I, I take Eusebius as a prime example of this. He writes the ecclesiastical history straddling the two periods, time periods. He begins it when a, a Christian commander-in-chief is inconceivable. That, that is just not an option. And you, one looks at the first seven books of the ecclesiastical history, and world history looks very different for him. Uh, God is sovereign even though there are good emperors and bad emperors. Who are the good emperors? The ones who didn't persecute the church. Who are the bad emperors? The, the ones who did persecute the church. So what is this relationship between church and state supposed to be? It's a relative coexistence. We live together in this time together, walking about, caring for each other's business. Don't kill us, please. That's basically his argument. And then Constantine comes. And you see the rise of millennial theology that the kingdom of God is here. And that's the latter two books of his ecclesiastical history. Christ is victorious. The kingdom of God, Christendom, has begun. We won. Even though we're still a much smaller minority, we're, we won, basically. And Christ's command, so the sovereignty of God. So they start interpreting an apocalyptic presence very differently. As time passes in the next few generations, that fervor of apocalypticism of the early 4th century, Lactantius does exactly the same thing, goes away. Because they start realizing this ain't the kingdom. <laughs> Regardless of what, this is not it. So now we have a more nuanced develop, uh, theology by Ambrose, Basil, Augustine, and we move on all the way to Justinian. It is very important also to remember that as the empire splits between East and West, a fun fundamental shift happens in how we, we view war. In the West, because Rome falls and the, the, the Gothic and etc. Uh, conquests, there is a holy war ideology developed, beginning with or coming to Gregory the Great, from Leo to Vigilius to Gregory, all the way up. Uh, we have a holy war that develops concept. In the East, holy war ideology never happens. Just war happens. And that is a fundamental difference between East and West. So when we speak of the Eastern Church and the Western Church ideologies and theologies as we move forward, we have to separate those two. For the West, the Church declares war. Pope Innocent, right? For the East, not a single place in the history of Byzantium where the Church declares war. It sanctions war, but doesn't declare it. So the, the East becomes much more old Roman than the Romans. Uh, 
theologically, when you have these ideologies of the sovereignty of God taking over temporal kingdom now here with us in it, uh, those are always tricky. And we see them coming, this triumphalism coming even to our day. Uh, I, I promised that I would not make the connection, but let me make a connection. Uh, yes, the Roman, the ancient Roman way of entering the legion, which was the, the sacramentum. The sacramentum was the, the military oath. Does that term mean anything to you? It's a corresponding sacrament. It's a sacrament. It's a religious ceremony. You enter the armies given the sacramentum, which is a military oath. You exit the armies by taking the, the, the sacramentum solver, which is the, the dissolution of the sacrament oath. It's bracketed by religious um, ideology. And everything in between is based, to the, uh, is based on the gods and the relationship with the gods. The legions never marched into battle without offering sacrifices, ever. The legions never came back from battle without offering gifts and honors to the gods. And you say, what happens when the Christians take over? If you follow the military history, even into the Byzantine Empire, nothing changes. Just the names change. It's exactly the same thing. You're going to make the modern allegiance. Is there an army that doesn't run into battle before, you know, without prayer? Even in a state like where we have separation? No. Why? Because you want God on your own side, right? You don't want God on, on other people's side. Um, though I, I, I did argue against Helgeland quite a bit in this document. He has a wonderful quote that I would like to read you. He says, you know, what about those who served in the army? I mean, how could they do that as Christians? How could they enter? He says this. Probably, he says, and he's facetious here, but stay with me. How could they divide their loyalty between the emperor and Christ when demanded, when the state did not turn the co-opting blind eye to Christians among their ranks. Probably model their Christianity along the lines of the Roman polytheism. Mars is for victory. Spring nymphs are for fresh water. Jupiter is for weapons that do not break in combat. And Christ is for when your weapon breaks and you die. Things haven't changed much. Um, read the military stories and biographies by those who have returned from war and see what they say. It, it is most often for me, the frustrating part of these discussions is when we jump three centuries and say, but, you know, look at what happened in the Middle Ages. There is a reason why we end up in the Middle Ages. They don't, don't just pop, you know, out of, out of nowhere. But where did we come from? And if we are to judge the past by its own writings and actions, don't we need to follow it through diachronically? Yes, sir. Um, with regard to the, to the sacramentum, that yes. reminded me of a particular story, uh, namely St. Martin of Tours, 
uh, who, who was a Roman soldier who famously was baptized and, and was a battle about to happen, said, I'm a soldier of Christ, I'm not allowed to fight. Um, and, and was eventually mustered out, I guess. I, I know sort of the broad outlines of that story, but not the details. In that detailed story, is there reference to sacramentum or, or the religious aspects of, of Martin's conversion? Um, this was happening fourth century, almost the same day as Constantine. That's right. And we do have a whole section called the, the Acts of the Military Martyrs in, in the martyrdom accounts, which are absolutely brilliant read because they go all the way through the Diocletian persecution, the Acts of the Military Martyrs. Uh, Musurillo has, uh, has translated and retained those in the Acts of the Martyrs. We have martyrs such as uh, a beautiful story from uh, Centurion Marinus, right, 200, uh, 260, 262, before Martin. He was confronted, he, he's a centurion. He's also a Christian. Now, centurions in, in the Roman army could be any, anything from non-commissioned officers all the way to lieutenant colonels. So it depends on what kind of centurion you are and what legion or what legion you are stationed. And he's at Caesarea, and he's up for promotion. And a rival comes and says, wait a minute. He's a Christian. He cannot be a centurion. I'm to be the centurion. The, the, the commanding officer comes and says, is that true? He says, yes. He gives him three hours to reconsider. And reconsider meant, or your head is off. <laughs> so he goes out. Um, Marinus comes out. And the first person he meets is the bishop of Caesarea. Those stories never end well. Uh, the bishop takes him to the church as Marinus is telling him the story. This is, what's, this is my conundrum. What do I do? And instead of telling him, how being a Christian did you serve in the army for 20 years? Why are you there? Why are you doing that? He brings him, literally drags him over to the altar, nails him down, uncovers his sword, which was by his side in official uniform, brings a, cover of the a copy of the Gospels and says, choose. That's it. That's the one word that the bishop utters. He says, choose. That day, Marinus was killed. And you can follow these stories. These are men who have, um, there's another story by Julius, who has been a veteran twice. I mean, he has done his 25 years, and then he re-opted for enlistment. You, you get a better pay the, the, the second time around. And this is what he says when it comes to the end. He says, though a Christian for 27 years, right, he says, all the 27 years in which I made the mistake, so it appears, to serve foolishly in the army, I betrayed my Lord. How do these men come to this point of conscience? In the military, in the acts of the military martyrs, there are many ways by which they come. Most often, it is not from within. It is the state that says, wait a minute, you're a Christian. How can you be in the legions? And which, which these, at least, Christians go, yeah, you're right. And they lose their head. Those stories never end well for them. They all die. Or actually, as they would say, they end perfectly well for them. Because they die martyrs for, for the cause. But it seems that, going back to the same question, or the same, it seems that as peace happened between church and state, 
the church does not ask questions that it asks in times of persecution or times of minority. In, in the church order documents, we have whole prescriptions of, okay, if you're a catechumen, you cannot be a brothel keeper. You cannot be a gladiator. You cannot oversee gladiatorial games. You cannot do this. You cannot. Who puts lists of what people cannot do if nobody does it? I mean, nobody does that, right? So we can assume that as time passes and people come into the church, there are brothel keepers who come into the church. There are gladiators who come into the church and magistrates who come to the church. And nobody asks the question. It's not any different than our time. Yes? I'm sort of a follow-up question to that. Um, in apostolic traditions, what it sounds like you've talked about before, the, the prohibition against being a soldier is linked with prohibitions against civil service, which to me seems to indicate that the primary Christian problem with civil service and serving as a soldier is the contrasting allegiance that you enter into this whole romanitas, this ethos that is right. fundamentally opposed to the not the problem of violence per se, which may be wrapped up in that, but it, it doesn't seem... Yeah, and that is the argument I'm trying to make, is that you cannot separate the, the two. Right. I mean, one cannot separate the color of your eyes from the genes that you have. Right. Right? It's, it may be two different discussions, but they're intimately linked. One expresses the other. And that is the point of this. And, and when the apostolic tradition, it says, and those who are, when asked to kill, should not. Right. Now what do you do? Because the Romans don't have conscientious objection. Your commander says, you're in the middle of battle, and says, kill, go, no. That does not end well, again. Um, so yes, it is, that's why I started the way I started, which is the gods of Rome and Romanitas demands sacrifice. And that sacrifice also comes in the form of not just incense or cows or stuff like that. It's everything. When Christians reject that sacrificial system, they reject everything that comes with it. So, yes. It, it's both. It's both linked. I, I didn't go into the section on civic magistracy because I thought, you know, I would have enough trouble with army here, but Yes, that's the same point. Tertullian has a whole section where he says, those of you who think that you can cross your fingers behind your back and not truly believe the oath, but still serve honorably in the office of the magistracy, tell me, don't you take the whole history of that office with you? Aren't you getting soiled by what everyone before you has done and everyone after you will do in that office? How will you be clean in this? And he uses a beautiful expression. He says, how can you wear somebody's soiled clothes and not be soiled? Clearly, he cannot see that as an option. But there were, it also means that there were Christians, and he says there were Christians, who say, I don't believe the oath. I just do the practice of it. Jesus is in my heart. It really doesn't matter what I do in order to be a faithful Christian in civic service. Tertullian says, no. That's lying twice. You lie to the state and you lie to God. Yes? I'm interested in the question of how God's violence relates to uh, the Christian's violence. So could you mark a shift between the relative violence or lack of violence that are allowed by Christians 
and the amount of violence that God is seen as executing. I guess you'd see this maybe in exegetical text. Yeah. Or, or where, how, how would you yeah. mark the transition of God? Uh, of course, early Christians, like all Christians, read their scripture, right? And you cannot read the conquest narratives and not go, okay, now what? What do we do now? Um, most of the writers of this time read scripture allegorically. They read scripture not Christotelically, but Christocentrically, Christologically. They read Christ back. So when the fulfillment happens in Christ, that which foreshadows the fulfillment is done. And you see it repeatedly, both Origen and Tertullian in, in their commentaries, talking about this transition from a nation that is bordered, a kinship that is to be retained, to a transnational identity. Um, and if we were to say in our time, or to speak for me and not as them, I would say exactly the same thing. There is a fundamental transition, transition and I have in the book a section on the, on, the, on the pivot of the incarnation, why the incarnation is so important for the early church, uh, including this that it changes and transforms the character of the community of the people of God. The people of God cease to be a localized community that is to be protected from its enemies and becomes a much grander idea that transgresses national boundaries, ethnic identities, gender identities, social identities. It becomes something completely different. And that is the leveling effect of baptism. Does that answer what you want? Yeah, sort of. Um, so would, would God be as violent uh, in the second century as God is in the fifth century? No. What God's activities are, yeah. does that correspond with how violent Christians are? No. Um, God still superintends everything. God is sovereign over all, right? But the state, remember, for, the, for, the, for these centuries, uh, the first principle of theology is human freedom. Humans are free to choose what they do. That is the first principle of origin and everybody else. So the state, humans, can choose to either obey the justice of God, in which case they don't engage in war and they don't kill, you know, etc., or do whatever they want to do and therefore be accountable to God for what they do. So the violence that is perpetrated by, let's say, the Roman state is not God's violence on the enemies of Rome. It is Rome's violence against the will of God. Even in the fifth century? No, in the fifth century it changes. And, and again, it goes east and west very differently in those two. And, and it, in the Roman experience, or the Western experience, the more the, Roman, the Western Roman Empire dissolves in the 5th century, from 410 on, it just a century and a half of just dissolving. Um, most people don't write on this, because they're trying to survive their daily life. So we have Augustine at the beginning of this, dealing with the influx of Christians, and then you have to jump to Grotius, basically, to come to that. In, in the East, um, what is going to be accepted with substantial ambivalence is Athanasius does accept service in, in, in war, for example, unquestionably, as a, 
not a noble, but as a necessary evil. He, uh, but Basil doesn't. He says, this is, though it has not been called murder, this is not a good thing. You have to recognize that. It, it will be in latter medieval times that Christendom is so much established. Some people have put Charlemagne as, as the, the date for that. Okay, if you want to peg it the same way as Constantinianism in the same category. But we're talking about completely different things. There was a hand over here. No? Yes, sir. Okay, sorry. Backing off yeah. from the specifics of what you say, many of the people that you speak to are not historians. Yeah. My brothers are historians. Very different uh, They're not historians. You're always told why history is important. However, if you were a lay person, you think of a or potentially a minister, what do you, historian of early Christian community, say is the importance of paying new attention to you and people like you that investigate this? Again, I'm taking that separate from why history ever matters. Because here, I think it's a little more fundamental because the people of faith. Because we're not, um, Cicero used to say, if we ignore what happens in the past, we all always remain children. And the tendency in an ahistorical society, including our churches, is to always be childish. Not being able to see the complexities of the narratives into which we enter. I think we just lost the mic. No? Okay. Okay. Um, we're not ahistorical people. When I go to the doctor and says, you know, tell me your family history. I go, no, 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 it's about me. It's not about my parents. I said, well, I don't know you without your parents. That's the same analogy. When the world looks at the church and says, who are you? They say, let me talk to you about me. You're not alone in this. You didn't start now. Actually, you didn't start in the first century. You started when God called Abram out of the Ur of Chaldeans. The problem is that we see ourselves as a punctum in time, as a point in time. And therefore, we don't understand the trajectories. Either coming to where, why are we the way we are, and where are we going? That's why history is important. That's why this history is important. Because a lot of people, a lot of us, pastors and laypersons alike, make up what we think the Christian message is because it makes us feel better. Looking back into the history, we realize we're not the first ones to ask these questions. We're not the first ones to answer these questions. And most often, the questions that the churches historically and diachronically have accepted as true and appropriate expressions of Christian faith challenge us. Yeah, but rarely true. Yeah. How are we doing on time? With your knowing, pick one, Tertullian, 
What would Tertullian say to American pastors today as we struggle with knowing we are, are co-opted in some way uh, in this in this nation, regardless of where we stand on the spectrum of, of understanding war and our faith? Are there any insights? I, I think, and actually that's why I wrote this, for, for us, even though I didn't make the link, you know, as you read these, they, they're not hard to figure out. First thing I would say is that we live in a very sacramental world, even though we want to live with the illusion that it's not a sacramental world. The fastest way to figuring this out, even do it at church, though I know your church with you as a pastor is going to be very different than, you know, my church. I do this experiment at school. I say to my students, how many of you know the Pledge of Allegiance? Everybody chuckles and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, 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 seriously. Let's do it. Group of 30 undergraduates, right? Everybody starts together, puts the comma in the same place, you know, stops together. Okay. Now say the creed. They go, uh, uh, there's always a smart one in the class. Which one? I go, did you ask which Pledge of Allegiance when I asked you? Say the Pledge of Allegiance? No, the Canadian flag. Let's do that one. <laughs> that, that very act, that very simple example, manifests immediately that we've been sacralized into a civic religion without knowing, understanding, or claiming to be. Everything else comes from that. Ask our young men and women who serve in the Army. When, when I went to basic training, I was 31 years old because we have conscription in Greece. I wasn't 17. At 17, I volunteered for the paratroopers. At 19, they put me in the Marines. By 31, they had me in medical corps and said, you're useless, go away. But through basic training, you hear the language, the initiation, and you go, what is this? At 31, I hear it very differently than 17. And what happens at 17 and 18 and 19 and 20? That initiation is a religious initiation. The standards, the signal of the, of the flags, the, you know, the badges and the tattoos are sacred. People give their lives for the flag of the regiment not to be left in the battlefield. That's a religious act because the flag is sacred. It's not a piece of fabric. It is sacred. And we as pastors, Tertullian would say, where's your allegiance? It's a simple question. Where is your allegiance? Who holds your allegiance? Answer that question. Everything else falls from that. Because at the end, you have competing allegiances. Can you imagine going to, to, to volunteer or to be drafted, come in front of the staff sergeant and say, OK, raise your hand, go, wait a minute. What if I don't feel like it? Can I still have the uniform and carry a gun? No. They shave your head, they strip you naked, and they give you a new identity. No different than the Romans. It's exactly actually what baptism used to be, right? It's the same idea. You enter a new community, religious community, even to this day. The brotherhood is your platoon, your regiment, your brigade, your corps, right? There was, I, I, I'm still looking, I have my TA looking for it. There was an absolutely amazing video, little clip, about a minute and a half, 
from the first Iraq war in 92, when we were entering Kuwait, 500,000 men and women, men primarily, amassed in the desert. And there was a chaplain baptizing a group of young soldiers as they enter battle, which is customary. They had the um, sacks and they had the poncho in, water in, the guy in the water. And he's, this is what the, the clip said. It says, because of your confession in core God and country, I baptize you. Boom. Hua. You go, what, what, what? what just happened? What? Go and die now. Core, God, and country. That's what Tertullian would say, I think. How can you think that you can be in that position and be soiled by the position itself? I don't know. Anything else? We have to end on a more cheerful note. Uh, yes? Um, I really appreciate this lecture and what you've done. Um, that where you just ended, though, begs the question I've been holding on to, which is the kind of pastoral care response to the church. So uh, this, uh, you mentioned the um, practice of withholding Eucharist mm -hmm. for three years. And I know that's still done in yeah. some traditions. And there are some uh, Christian theologians who commend it as a word of practice, and that always really troubles me yeah. as a time when that's need um, a, a response that reckons with the tragic experiences they yeah. have been involved with and the wrong they have done, and also welcomes them with grace. And so uh, can you kind of follow up on where you just ended with now? Now what? Yeah. Um, Commercial advertisement or commercial break. Uh, I'm, I'm, the next book I'm working on is called Crumbs from the Table, the Eucharist for the Life of the Church. Um, it's coming out with Erdman's. And the last section of that is exactly on that. What I'm proposing, I, I extend that to civic magistracy also, not just military, is that we need to recover the medieval practice of penance for soldiers who return from military service. But I want to push it a little further and say it's not just for the soldiers who returns, it's also for the church that receives them, the community that receives them. Because it's a penance, not just of the person, but of the whole community that make it necessary for the person to go out and kill. It's a communal act. It was our failing that forced you to need to go out. And it is the grace of God that reunites both of us. A lot of pastoral counsel needs to happen for both. Unfortunately, I don't know about here, but I come from a part of the world in which the only thing that we do with, the primary thing we do with returning soldiers is parades. And then we worry about, I have a dear friend who works, he served in Vietnam, he's a psychologist, he works with returning veter veterans and says, very few people understand what this man primarily, he works with men, go through. They're not gonna talk about it. Um, especially to those who haven't been there. Pastoral care is that, right there, to say it's our fault as much as it is yours. 
and at the same time training and educating the next generation saying, why is this a fault? Why this should not have happened? And how can we help you, the new generation or the subsequent generations, not to need to do that? So the church has to be both receiving on the back end, but also being proactive in responding to, protesting, standing in the middle. I have a, one, everyone who has been to, to London has one of these mugs, you know, uh, mind the gap. I have it on my desk and take you to class because for me it's a theological statement. It's exactly the place of the church. The ch place of the church is the gap between oppressor and oppressed. Even if that oppressor is social structure or military power. The place of the church is at the gap between oppressor and oppressed. And these young men and women who come back not only need that, but they're most often part of the oppressed. Sociological studies abound on who serves in the army. Read them. They're eye-opening. But that's the place of the church. The pastoral care is an empathy that says, we did this together. We need to repent together. We need to come back to the Eucharist and say, this is life-giving. This is not a reward. This is life-giving for you and for us. Let's repent together. Is that a happier note to end? Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity. Thank you. This has been a production of CST Media. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.